from the west side of Charlotte, North Carolina. This is Here for Good. Here for Good! Here for Good! A collection of stories and conversations with the kinfolk of QC Family Tree. 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 Listen in as we seek to awaken the popular imagination to new possibilities of abundance and spark social action for the common good. I'm one of the kinfolk. My name is Helms Gerald. This episode is about a narrative of departure and the kingdom of interruption. Neighborhood economics is reordering a way of life that shakes us out of our assumptions of extraction to show the world could be organized differently because God is among us. In a moment of uncertainty, my Baptist mystic mentor, Bud Fisher, gave me a phrase that I still hold close. He said, look for the little lights. Whenever it seems dark or confusing or full of muck, I remind myself to look for the little lights. I want to tell you about a little light I have found in Shonda Ja. I'm Shonda Ja. I'm the director of the Oakland Peace Center. And that's a collective of 40 different nonprofits working together, 12 of whom are in the same physical space, and the other 28 plus of whom are out in the community, and we're just seeking out solidarity. And to me, that's really what creates the good life, is being seen, feeling less alone in the world, and finding ways to show up for each other. Um, Dr. King used to talk a lot about the beloved community, and to me, that's a place where everybody's needs are met, and everybody's gifts are honored. So, yeah. For me, the good life's not all that complicated. It's a place where we have everything we need and where people see us and recognize what it is we have to contribute mm-hmm. and honor that. Mm-hmm. I like that. You want to tell us a bit about your book? Transforming Communities is it's my third book, and it's in a whole bunch of ways been the most fun for me because the first two books were about race and a whole bunch about injustice related to race. It's not that this one didn't have anything to do with race, but this one, Transforming Communities, was a lot about when people do things right. In a lot of ways, I wrote this book because I needed hope, a time when things seemed to be so bleak. And this gave me a chance to reflect on the times I've seen it being done right, when regular people saw what was wrong in their communities and gathered together and did something about it. It was the book I needed so that I didn't give up. There are times when I will say, this organization looks a lot like us, or like this one does too. And so to be able to go and visit all those places and write about them and to kind of recognize that you're not alone in the work, I think would be really restorative. I mean, from reading the book, it's restorative, but like actually going on all the field trips and and meeting with the people, (laughs) I think would be extra fun. It was actually really cool because it gave me a chance to pause and say, whose work is it that helped me get to where I am? Hmm. Because I don't think we need to create anything from scratch. There's already amazing, brilliant things going on out there in the world. Uh, And it really was a chance to kind of say, so who are the folks whose work reminded 
or two ago that helped contribute to me understanding what was possible. So what is the kind of work that you're aiming for, like the project or the goal that you're thinking of right now? So for me, locally is one thing, right? But I also think that nationally and even globally, we're at the beginning of a movement, right? Um, And I think it's not a one-year or five-year or 10-year movement. It's a 50-year movement. It took 50 years for things to be put in place to get us to this particular moment. 50 years of really intentional community organizing by people who function out of a politics of fear and a a politics of greed and a politics of isolation. And they were using really strategic, local, grassroots organizing methods 50 years ago that kept moving them closer and closer to their goal. And we're kind of living in what they may not have realized was their ultimate goal, but this is where they took us. And the thing that's exciting for me is realizing our vision is a lot more exciting. There's a lot more hope, right, in a world that has room for everybody, that is grounded in an ethic of love, that actually is engaged in the sharing of power instead of the hoarding of it, and the sharing of resources rather than the hoarding of it. That's a much more compelling vision. And I think we're at the beginning of a 50-year movement to globalize that vision. And so remembering that 50 years ago, it was a whole bunch of tiny little scrappy local movements that led to this moment, looking around and saying, oh my gosh, there are these tiny little scrappy and sometimes not so tiny or scrappy movements that are about everybody uh, being brought along on the journey that make me realize 50 years from now we're going to be living in a world that is good and glorious and healed and whole. These little glimpses into what that can look like help guide us towards that moment 50 years from now when this is the norm. Right. So for me, those are all little snapshots of the world we can live in 50 years from now if we just get started. Hmm. I think I was, Walter Brueggemann came to town whenever I have an opportunity, I'd like sit there and write down every single word he says. Um, yeah. But um, he talked about this time the, the metaphor he used for the prophets was poet and artist. But other times I've heard him say ragtag hopers, which I feel like yes. is what you're talking about. These scrappy crazies that are <laughs> moving the <laughs> that are moving the dial for us. I like I think that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. I like thinking of them as being scrappy poets. <laughs> it's nice. Yeah, because it's the folks who can see a different world. And I think some of that is the visionaries and the poets and the artists. And some of that's the folks who know very well that this way isn't working. And so, like, that's where the kind of scrappy ragtag... I was joking with someone recently. I was like, there's a great theologian from my denomination, the Disciples of Christ, who famously once said, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Um... So Janis Joplin, Disciples of Christ, same denomination as me. And uh, and to me, I think there's something about the intersection of the poets, the dreamers, the visionaries, and the folks who know the way things are is not working. Because there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on in the world that tries to convince us that the way things 
clients are is the only way they can be. And I think my I think transforming communities had a lot to do with people who knew that that was a lie. Mm. And so they had to imagine a different way of being mm. uh, and had to create that different way of being. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of my hope comes from. Yeah. So what does this other world look like, this alternative to the empire? There's an organization out here called The Village. They, they've started building tiny homes with homeless folks. And it's really interesting because I feel like there's this kind of glimpse into the two different versions of the world. Because at the same time they're doing that, the city has, I don't know if they have some sort of agreement with the Tough Sheds company, but they've bought a whole bunch of Tough Sheds and are trying to create communities for the homeless folks. And just by means of background, Oakland's got this huge spike um, in homelessness in large part due to the displacement crisis and gentrification and and so there's these two movements going on at the same time there's the city government that has just fenced in a bunch of folks with porta potties that don't get cleaned out very often that have set up signals so the people living in that tough shed uh, area aren't allowed to get wireless signals where when people volunteered to donate solar panels, the city government refused, except for the office uh, on, on the premises. So the city government office that was on the premises has solar power. And otherwise, it's generators that run from 9 p.m. to 1 p.m. and they don't have any uh, service, they don't have any electricity from 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. And the folks who are formerly incarcerated, who have ankle bracelets, uh, they're they're risking going back to jail because they have no place to charge their ankle monitors. Whereas this non-governmental group of folks got together, formed a group called The Village, and sat down with the folks who were unsheltered and said, what do you need? And what they needed was 24-hour power, and what they needed was wireless access, and what they needed was the ability to charge their ankle monitors. And so there's these two different communities that are sitting side by side, not literally, but sitting in the same city. And it's so clear that one is shaped by fear and limitations and liability and this other community that starts from the place of, so what do you need? What do you want? What do you think is possible? And they look completely different from each other. So. To me, the beloved community, this alternative economy, looks an awful lot like a group of people sitting down together and saying, what is it that helps us survive together? Mm. And how do we make that happen? I know that this sounds overly simplistic, and I'm not saying that the village has everything going smoothly for it. One of their big challenges is the city government keeps tearing down their tiny homes that they built, for example. But, um, but the contrast seems really clear. Mm. Um, when folks are getting what they need and invited to contribute what they have to offer, you end up with a very different looking community. Right. Gosh, I can't even I can't even fathom what you have just described. Except for to say that to be able to choose one over the other of what you just described, I can't imagine anybody would want to choose the fear induced experience. But there are some that would still choose that. 
Um, I guess yeah. because of the the things that you mentioned, liability, legitimacy, authority, power, those kinds of things. But gosh, that just seems like uh, that people have come to such a place that they're choosing this life that isn't life-giving, but yeah. only out of fear. You know that sermon that Dr. King gave, the, the drum major instinct? Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorites because there's this story in it that I come back to over and over. And he's talking about when he was, you know, in jail for, who knows, like the 197th time or something. And they're in for like three or, they've been in for like three or four days. And the jailers are making fun of them for singing and, uh, and, and just giving them a really hard time. And sometime around day three, Dr. King and his colleagues actually get a chance to talk to the jailers. And Dr. King says, so how much money y'all make? And uh, they tell him, and he looks at him for a second, and he's like, y'all should be in here with us, right? And his point is, you're not doing any better under this system than we are. I mean, and he basically says, the only thing you get out of this system is the illusion that you're better than us. But in the meantime, you're getting, and he, did, he said it much more eloquently than this, but basically you're getting screwed by the same folks who are screwing us, mm -hmm. right? We're all in the same boat economically. You're being treated badly. You're being exploited. And the only thing that's propping this up is someone says to you, don't fight for more. Just remember you're better than those guys. And I don't know why that holds so much power over us, but it does. So yeah, it's a really important question that you're asking. I wish I knew what the answer was. Mm. Why do we... Why do we keep participating in this system that keeps hurting us mm -hmm. as well as the people we've been told are our enemies? So how in the world did you get this way then? I mean, if, you know, like you're choosing a different way. How'd you get there? <laughs> Man, that's a legit question. Um, like I always give props to my parents and I recognize that's probably a very Asian thing to do, but like I have particularly remarkable parents. So my father's from India, my mother's from Scotland. They gave up a whole bunch to be with each other. They risked, um, they risked being disowned by both sides of the family. And in fact, kind of, they definitely were on one side. They kind of were on the other side. And even so, they, even at the point where no one was talking to them on either side of the family, they were still, still setting aside every penny they had to support the family that was in need back in India. I got lessons early on that it's not so much about who likes you and who doesn't, it's about who you're accountable to and who you support when you've got enough, right? So that was one lesson I learned from them. And the other lesson I learned was when your biological family or when your family who has authority or power rejects you, there's plenty of family to find elsewhere. Mm. So I grew up in this world where, you know, they were friends with other mixed race couples. When we moved to this country, we were friends with other immigrants and we were friends with mixed race black and white couples. and. We, we were friends with folks from all walks of life. So my parents kind of taught me, here's how you build a family from the people who are in your community and the people who have been
been told just like we have that we're not welcome. Here's how you build a community of the unwelcome so that we can welcome each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where a lot of it came from. I was really lucky in that I was raised by those kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So there are there... Um... Is there anything from your childhood or pop culture or anything like that that also kind of comes to the surface and you see when you think of this alternative to the empire, it comes up in your head? Man, since it came out in 2014, I have been listening to D'Angelo's Black Messiah on repeat, like to the point that my phone is like, don't make me play it again. Uh, I think there's something about, like it came out, right, uh, the week that uh, Darren Wilson was acquitted of the murder of Michael Brown, and we were all on the streets, right? Um, all over the country. And and that album came out, and it was, in some ways, um, a love tribute to black America. And I'm not black, and I'm not trying to be black, I'm not pretending I'm black in any way, shape, or form. Um, but there's something about somebody saying to his community, you are divine and you come from divinity and you are glorious and you are sensual and you are beautiful and you are powerful. That helps me recognize the ways I can be doing that in my own community and helps me recognize my own divinity as well. Hmm. So right like literally the past practically four years um that's been on repeat uh anytime i work out that's my default album (laughs) i'm gonna have this mental image now be like working out listening to the music i like it i like it (laughs) (laughs) although i'm not gonna lie sweatshop boys oh my gosh that's the best concert i've ever been to s-w-e-t um those guys are both south asian and like they've got this whole song um, about how you take your, your shoes off when you go into the mandir, the Hindu temple, how you take your shoes off in the Gurdwara, the Sikh temple, how you take your shoes off when you go to the mosque, the, you know, the Muslim uh, religious space, and how you take your shoes off at the airport. And so, given the fact that we all, like, get pulled out by TSA every single time we travel through, like, having a song that's all about, like, these sacred spaces and this place where we are invited to both worship and fear mm. um, our government and rely on it for our safety, as opposed to these other places that are inviting us to turn to the divine as our protection. There's something, it's, I laugh every time I listen to the song because I can relate to it. And just recently I've been like, oh my gosh, what does it mean? Um, that the places we take off our shoes because they're holy ground now in the airport Mm -hmm. Um, what does it mean to be in a space where we are literally being trained to fear each other and to trust in our government to keep us safe from each other Mm -hmm. so yeah that one's been on my heart a lot recently as well sweatshop boys they are amazing they're so good Uh, and they also put on a heck of a concert okay so how do you see your role as minister? Like what, what, how does that relate to this idea of building up abundant community? Part of the reason I joined the denomination 
I did the Disciples of Christ is because they really believe really deeply in this notion of the priesthood of all believers. So I take really seriously that anybody who is baptized into the Christian faith has already signed up to be a minister. Um, and my impression is that you come out of that same kind of camp of like we're all we're all called into a ministry. Um, all of us who have professed our faith, and there are different roles. And I think um, I've been given the privilege of getting to study the texts in a different way. And so for me, my job as a minister, because I've been given that privilege, is to carry that stuff back into my community and be like, hey, did you know there's another way to look at these books? What do you think about this? Did you know that this is what was going on in those days? How does that tie to what's going on today? And so I think the privilege of that kind of education I take really seriously as an obligation to bring back to my community and help them re-engage the texts and re-engage the text that is our neighborhoods um, in different ways. So for me, it's not so much like the, and I know that this is true for you also, it's not so much the power, but it's the, the obligation that comes from having been given access to those kinds of gifts and tools. Hmm. Some of the things that you're saying remind me of whoever it was that said something about preaching with the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. And I think the other piece that person didn't say, who was it? Was it? Uh, yeah. Somebody. Uh, not Roush. Oh, okay. So, um, okay. So. Gotcha. All right. So, but the thing that they don't say, or at least I don't know that they say it, is that. It seems that maybe the uniqueness right now is also, it's like newspaper in one hand, uh, Bible in the other, and feet in the dirt. And the feet in the dirt. Right. That it's, um, not that, I don't know, that that part is really very essential and also being talked about a lot in, in ministry. Um, this like your place, the local place, and what is in the ground, the history of the land, and all those things are essential in um, addressing and then also in like ministering too. How do you keep hope when things are slow and small? Man, because if you're paying attention, right, there's five million little moments of hope, I kind of feel like, every day. There's these moments where people are seeing the connections between things where they're catching fire about stuff. I get super jazzed, like, and this is where sometimes it's hard to be an organizer in Oakland because we definitely have, like, woke Olympics around here a lot, or what I like to refer to as purity politics. Thank you. Everybody's competing for, you know, who's got it the most right, and I get kind of worn down by that, and so, and I've heard other people complain about this too, and I'm kind of like, if that's what's happening... That if that's the only conversations you're ever having, you're not having conversations with the right people. Because there's, we're in a city of 400,000, and there are not 400,000 people who are fully engaged in the movement for justice. Which means we need to be talking to the people who are not yet fully engaged in that movement. And for me, where the life comes is 
I'm talking with folks in in the community where I work, and they're discovering for the first time, you know, fancy terms like neoliberalism, right? And they're like, oh my gosh, there's a word for this thing that I've been living under, and I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what to call it, and I didn't know other people thought this too. And getting to have those kinds of conversations, for them to have the language for it and to realize there are other people talking about it and that they can plug into that, mm-hmm. that's where I come alive. So I have moments of hope all the time because anytime there's someone who has the lived experience of being on the margins and for you to be like, hey, did you know there are other people who are talking about this so that we don't have to live out here on the margins? Um, those are the moments of hope for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like there's plenty of opportunities to have those kinds of moments. So, yeah, that's what keeps me going. Yeah. Are there um, people or a place that you particularly want to lift up or honor or celebrate because they're embodying this concept of abundant neighborliness? Yeah, for sure. Um, I had uh, organizational crushes. Like I said, we work with 40 or different nonprofit partners, and they're all amazing. But one of the ones that springs to mind for me towards the top of the list almost every time is East Point Peace Academy. Um, so Kazu Haga helped found that, and it's called East Point Peace Academy because they said, we need to be as serious about dismantling the violence in our community and in our culture. Uh, dismantling that culture of violence, we need to be just as serious about it as the folks at West Point Military Academy are about training people into a culture of war and militarism and violence. Uh, And that dude is in jail and prison like every day. So he's training folks in Dr. King's model of nonviolence, so Kingian nonviolence. And he's gotten to the point, or they've gotten to the point, that they now have folks who have been through the train the trainer. So there are folks in jail and prison who are now licensed Kingian non-violence trainers. And they're teaching the other guys in jail and prison. And they're bringing, and East Point Peace Academy is bringing in people like me, you know, people who are from the community into the jails and prisons to be trained by inmates who are licensed trainers. And when those guys get out of prison, they've got a community of support and they've got a community that needs their gifts. So once they're out of prison, they're training people in the schools and in the neighborhood in Kenya nonviolence tactics. And we're building out this network of folks who have the skills to effect change for social justice in ways that are grounded in a culture of peace. Um, And that blows my mind, right? Like the fact that he's building community in a place that is in many ways intended to destroy community. Mm-hmm. So they're one of my favorite, like, turn the world on its head kind of organizations. Yeah, that's amazing. This is super intense. Like, Bernard Lafayette, uh, Dr. Lafayette, was in charge of, of some of that, like, nonviolence curriculum April 3rd at the Lorraine Motel Dr. Lafayette's walking out of Dr. King's motel room and Dr. King says to him, Bernard, you know the next thing we have to do is institutionalize and globalize the nonviolence part of this movement, right? Mm -hmm. And 
Dr. Lafayette's on his way out to some youth conference in D.C. And he's like, okay, uh, I guess we'll talk about that later so I can understand what you mean. Um, and the next day, Dr. King was murdered. And so Dr. Lafayette has this resting on his shoulders, right? Mm-hmm. That responsibility to carry out one of the last wishes of Dr. King. And didn't have a lot of traction in this country, but was doing that work in Guatemala and in Nicaragua and in, in other parts of the world in the 70s and 80s. And now it's kind of expanding that movement out here. It's the only nonviolence training that's kind of licensed by Coretta Scott King. Mm. She signed off on it and made them promise that they would never deviate from it. So it's like a really very specific, very um, unmovable uh, version of that work. But it's pretty powerful stuff. That's it. So have you completed your training? Uh, I've been trained. I've done the initial training. I have not done a train the trainer. Uh, I feel like they're doing such a good job that I'd rather just keep learning from right. them. Yeah. I do faith rooted organizing trainings. I do anti racism trainings. Uh, my trainer uh, packet is pretty full, so right. I'm happy to be trained in some stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's cool. So what are you reading right now, or um, what things are you really kind of looking at as? with fresh eyes. Roxanne Gay's book, Hunger, is like one of my, it has taken me a year to get through it because it was so intense. Um, And she's just one of the most brilliant people out there right now. And I think she's getting super discovered at this point. She, and I only discovered her maybe a year ago. And it's it's a book of her journey with like eating and living in the world as a large black woman who, and she describes her body as unruly, right? And and what it means to inhabit this world, sometimes proudly, sometimes with shame, because of who she is. Now, I discovered her before this book came out when she was on my favorite podcast, Politically Reactive, with W. Kamau Bell and Hari Kondabolu. And the thing that totally resonated with me on that podcast was she said she was done with the term ally and I was like crud I have a whole chapter on how to be a good ally in my most recent book what am I going to do Uh, what does she mean I thought allies were good I was trying to encourage more people to be allies I want more allies Uh, but her point was and I think you've probably you're probably familiar with this quote by Lilla Watson an aboriginal activist from Australia who says, and I'm going to paraphrase this, um, if you've come here to help me, I don't want you around. But if you have come because you recognize that your survival is inextricably bound up in mine, then we can work together. And what Roxanne Gay was talking about was she didn't want people showing up to help her, Mm -hmm. to help black people, to help black women. She wanted people showing up because they knew that their world was worse because of the injustices of racism and patriarchy. And I'm down for that. So anything Roxanne Gay writes, I want to read because anybody who helps me get there can help me get a lot of other places too. Mm-hmm. So one book that I'm reading that I've been telling everybody about is called Emergent Strategy by Adrienne oh, Marie Brown. That's what you're going to say. Yes. Yeah. Marie Brown. Yes. Real. So I good. I that to my class in East it's yes. really, really good. I'm really, I've, so I've been enjoying about it. Well, it just feels like, I mean, I don't think she would ever want to be 
like labeled as a Jesusy person, but it just feels like prophetic imagination. It feels like co-creation. I read Parable of the Sower. So I've only read one Octavia Butler book and I enjoyed it as like a fictional novel, but I didn't like, I didn't understand where, how Adrienne got so fired up from the Octavia Butler novels that she was able to read, that she was able to write this. I mean, I see the parallels, but it seems like for me, her relationship with Grace Lee Boggs and her, her relationship in Detroit has really influenced her writing too. So it's I can see more of the Detroit and the Grace Lee Boggs than I can of Octavia Butler, but I still just feel like all the things she's saying just feel like it's just new, fresh words to things that I that I think the church has been trying to say and has lost a, a fun language with which to say it, and not even just a fun, but a churchy people. Try, yeah, and um, churchy people have to boil everything down to make it so easy. So then the complexity and the like umami or whatever like the denseness of it is lost it was new and fresh and complex way of thinking about about something that had become almost like dogma or something that had become so routine so i really have enjoyed her work Um, and i really appreciated that because i feel like sometimes we get into a new spot and we think oh we just like turn over a new leaf or something we're coming up fresh with like where everything's new and and fine but we don't realize that we're still all that stuff is still in us good and bad and maybe it's not good or bad but both and it's helping us to to create and grow so yeah i love that This week, during this segment, you'll hear our take on the Revised Common Lectionary and the Narrative Lectionary text, looking ahead to the worship, preaching, and teaching moments in your congregations. The Narrative Lectionary has us starting on a sermon series or a scripture series based on the Exodus. Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 are our beginning texts. I mean, the first thing I'd like to say is that if you have not wa- read any of Walter Brueggemann, then now's the time. <laughs> <laughs> now's the time. Now's the time to pull out the Walter Brueggemann text. And if you need the, the uh, what's it called, Cliff Notes version, I'll put a link to my notes from his, um, his talks that I've been to. I've been to two different really great talks and I have those notes and I'll keep that link in the podcast commentary section. So Exodus 19 is this story that's the precursor to the actual uh, passage that we think of as the Ten Commandments where so God calls Moses 
up onto Mount Sinai. He calls the people to gather there with him around the base, but then Moses is the only one that's allowed to go up onto the mountain. Uh, and he becomes kind of the messenger for the people. And, and then the, the second portion that's given there uh, alongside that story in the narrative lectionary is the first two verses of Exodus 20. It's really important to note that these commandments are not a series of laws that are just from nowhere, that they are grounded in a story. And that story is spelled out briefly, um, but very importantly in the first verses. So God is the God who brought the people out of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And because of that story, that God who brought the people out is to be the only God that they have. The way that I think about this is if you have lived a certain lifestyle forever and you are either called or have chosen to change lifestyles, then you have to make up some rules for yourself so as not to fall back into old ways. When I started to study and practice yoga, I had to relearn how to stand. Because you stand, like I typically stand with my weight on one leg, my hip poked out, maybe my hand up by my side, but that doesn't allow for a lengthened spine. It doesn't allow for good posture. And so in yoga, when you're trying to align yourself to one mind, one body, one breath, then you need to do that physically with your body. You have to line yourself up. And so you have to relearn how to stand. Basically, in this scripture passage, it's, it's it's getting us to this moment where it's helping us to recognize that the ways of the Israelite people are about to change. And they were living this one lifestyle, and now they're going to have to relearn everything. It's working us toward helping us to understand that these rules aren't just a set of rules, but they're a new way of living. And they're a new way of living in contrast to the way of living that they had learned for 400 years in their time in, in enslavement in Egypt. So uh, one, of the, one of the key pieces of Dr. Brueggemann's work is that he lays these commandments out as a counter-narrative to what it's like to live in the extractive economy of Pharaoh. When God uh, begins this, this series of statements that are reported, God stands there in contrast to the way of Pharaoh, and the command not to have any other gods is a direct break from the the culture where in which they were enslaved, where Pharaoh was God, and where that extractive economy drew all of their resources out of them in a manner of exploitation. So they're entering into a very different world now, where, where there's going to be a very different standard for what it means to be a human. As they were receiving these commandments, you can maybe imagine that when they're receiving them, they're saying like, hooray, afterwards. They're excited about this new world, this new illustration of a world that God is giving to them. And it's these moments where it's not, it's not a restriction. It is a liberation, a breaking loose. You don't have to be confused about what God to worship and you don't have to set up altars to multiple gods and make sure that all the gods are happy anymore there's just one god and this god 
is one that you can love with all of your being. It's all one thing. You don't have to kind of give a little bit of offering to this thing and then figure out how to do prayer to this God. It's all one thing. Your life, your breath, your thoughts, your behaviors, everything is dedicated to this one God. This is a gift that God is giving to the people and not a, a restraint. And so then if you are in the narrative lectionary, if you, if you switch over to the Matthew text, you have the same exact words again, but this time the priests are trying to trick Jesus and they're trying to figure out how they can somehow trap him so that he can get caught in a mistake. And so they go and ask him this question that they think is complicated because they've gotten themselves convinced that the rules are restraining rules. The rules are to keep you in a certain way. And so they go to him and they think they're going to capture him in a trap. And they ask him the question. And then he gives them basically the exact words from the beginning of the commandments. So I think it would be really, really interesting to, in your context to be thinking about what are the ways in which your congregation is enslaved? Or what are the ways in which your congregation has, partake, has participated in enslavement? I think it's a both and. And if you can name those ways of extraction or totalism, if you can name the ways in which your congregation, congregants have participated in scarcity mindset, um, thinking that there is never enough, paying attention to more than one God. If you can name that, then perhaps you can also name the opposite of that and, and help to give a picture of what the God world, the God kingdom looks like for your congregants in their particular time and place. In chapter 19, beginning of verse 38, Jesus' body is removed from the, from the cross and is prepared for burial. And there is Nicodemus, who, together with Joseph of Arimathea um, and some others, are there to prepare Jesus' body. So the one who learns this lesson about being born again, and who walks away uh, kind of mystified without making any sort of decision, then shows back up uh, in chapter 19 as Jesus has died and helps to place his body in the tomb. So a really, really rich imagery there that's going on with the story of Nicodemus. Okay, and then the Romans text focuses on life, and then it also talks about children, and there are these kind of things that are put beside each other. The flesh and the spirit are put beside each other almost as if they're opposites. Death and life are put beside each other. Um, children, and it doesn't really say here, adults but it does put children beside father and um, puts those as opposites. So maybe thinking about how that dualism or that um, those comparisons are true and how they are opposites and what you could kind of piece apart from the metaphor of, of them being opposites. Maybe even also exploring how are they connected how are they the same or how are they kind of a i don't know a connected part of a thread life cannot exist without death children and parents cannot exist without one another um, in some form and so it might be interesting just to 
kind of think through that as you're preparing your sermon or as you're thinking about the scripture because then it might help you to hear the voice of the child or the voice of the father or hear the words of life or the words of death or of flesh or of spirit. And then this the Psalm 29, to me, there are not very many folks that I know of that know the sounds that are being made in this great storm that is being described in Psalm 29. And I don't know how in the world you would be able to expose people to these sounds, but the breaks of cedar and, I mean, people have heard thunderstorms, so thunder and water is something familiar. But there are several images here that people I don't think really know and in fact, there's this whole, you know, like the, if the tree falls in the forest, can anyone hear it kind of joke? I mean, there are, there are images here of oak and cedar that are breaking. What does that sound like? I would really want to find a way for people to have like an experience of the psalm rather than just reading it. I think that would be an interesting thing to dip into. Yeah, the, the imagery here is so stark. Um, this is this is a very, um, the images are all heightened and, and extreme. And so, especially to enter into the sounds of those uh, and the, the terrifying kind of sounds of those could be a really effective way of reading it and bringing your people into the image world of this song. Thanks for listening to Here for Good. Here for Good. Here for Good. Sponsored by QC Family Tree. 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 Here for Good. Here for Good. I was going to say, I don't want to say it.